Welcome to Play on Nerds, the only podcast recorded live from Planet Vulcan. I'm your host, Mark Allen, and with me, the man who once won a staring contest against Lieutenant Commander Data, Ron Raider. I'm attempting to fill a silent moment with non-relevant conversation. Hello, everyone. Hey, Mark, where are we boldly going today? I am so glad you asked. We are going to explore all sorts of regions and cultures within various game and media settings. Well, my bags are packed, so let's go. Let's do it. So, D&D, we're going to start, and we had mentioned in the Dragons episode the various environments, I guess, that Dragons resided in, which goes without saying that parties would be able to visit those very various environmental areas. So, you know, we'll briefly go over those, because a lot of people, especially newer players, I think, think, okay, Dungeons & Dragons, you're basically going to be in dungeons most of the time, right? You're going right. to be exploring the Underdark. That's that's the setting. That's Dungeons & Dragons. There's so much more to it than that. And, you know, in our campaign we just wrapped up, there were several um, areas that we went through that were kind of unique. But to me, it's I always picture it in my mind's eye. Probably different than what it actually is. But, you know, that's half the fun of D&D as well. Sure. But I have yet to go to a really unique setting in a game as a player. Now, I will, a little spoiler alert for you, Ron, because you're in my upcoming campaign, but you read Kobold Press stuff anyway, so you probably are aware of this setting. Zobek is one of the cities that we will be talking about shortly in Midgard, in the Midgard setting. Nice. So I'm sure you're familiar with those with that setting a little bit. At a little, least, yep. just a little bit. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things about that setting is an unexplored area, I guess, it is, as far as my experience goes. I know there's plenty of campaigns out there and plenty of DMs who use it. A little bit of steampunk in with your fantasy. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. You know, um, Another setting that did that was Iron Kingdoms, which was amazing. We talked about that with War Machine a little bit here and there. And they're heavily steampunk. That's awesome. And it's like, I just like a little bit, you know, just, just a smidgen. So, you know, we'll talk about different settings and such, but that's one of the areas that I've not explored as a player or really as a DM. I'm glad you said this because, um, so in this campaign we just wrapped up, I kept it mostly to traditional Tolkien kind of, I guess you would say British, English type of medieval settings. And part of that was just, you know, getting back into running fantasy tabletop games. But our game ended... With, and not to go into the great details because I'm sure listeners are not interested in this, but ultimately a new world was formed, a patchwork world from many other worlds, and so there were pieces from other worlds. And part of that was simply because with our new campaign, which will be a Pathfinder 2 campaign, I wanted to set up a world where there was drastically different environments. And not only were there different environments throughout the world, like there is in our real world, but also... Pulling on different resources to make this world quite varied. So with this upcoming campaign, you may be surprised by some of the things that you find in here. I don't want to spoil anything for you, but part of the ambition with this new world and wanting to have a new campaign is because I wanted to open up the environments in which the party found themselves or could find themselves. So 
this is really uh, appropriate for me right now, this topic. And I, as I've been working on building that world over the last couple of weeks, it's exciting stuff. And I'm hoping that the players will find themselves in just all kinds of different environments. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, thank you for not spoiling. Um, <laughs> I want to so bad, but I won't. Right. And I'm sure we'll talk about this when we get to the film and television portion of this podcast or this episode. But Avatar was so successful when it opened the first one because it was so different as far as environment and such goes. Yeah, and gorgeous, too. It was go- yeah, it was gorgeous. It was very beautiful. But it was, it was so unique. We'd never seen anything like that before. Same with Harry Potter. We'd never seen a hidden magical world that's fantasy-based, but kind of modern, but, you know, is so unique. And that's part of my appeal for D&D and role-playing games in general, is it's your world. You can build it how you want. And I'm not even talking environments as far as, you know, the, the world itself is concerned, like tundra or, you know, forest, that sort of thing. I'm talking, like... If you want to have a forest that's gigantic mushrooms instead of trees, absolutely go for it because it can be done. It's your world. Yep. World building is so fascinating and so fun. And uh, again, because I'm currently working on that for the new campaign, I'm I'm having just a terrific time with this. And I, one of the things that I've discovered is that as you are world building and you're adding lore you're adding geographical locations, organizations, various NPCs. When you're world building, the one thing you have to keep in mind is to remember that you're building the world for the overall story and the plot for the players and setting things up for them. And you're not just building something that looks cool to you that's never going to come up. <laughs> right. Or you're just spinning your wheels. But you made a great point a second ago. And that is, it's your world when you're home brewing. There's so much that you can add and so many, so much variety you can add. And you can just create a place that is fantastic and something your players have never seen before. I had the, and I've mentioned this before, the very old Grognard approach Get off my lawn. to D&D for a long time where my D&D was Conan-esque. He's Conan, the librarian. We're in that type of environment. Yeah, there's dragons, there's knights. It's very British-looking landscape. And over the last few years, I've started to open up my mind more to the epic high fantasy approach to D&D where the characters are like superheroes and there's a multitude of different species that a player can play. And so, you know, it's it's exciting because there's also a multitude of different uh, realms and environments that you can incorporate into your world building. Oh yeah, absolutely. One of you know, I mentioned it, Magic the Gathering a few times on this podcast. <clears throat> Went back when I played regularly, it was a little different. You know, the world building was you know fantasy with a little steampunk thrown in. But several years later, I'd given up on Magic, and then I got back into it a little bit again. And that's kind of how Magic goes for me. I'll get back into it here and there. And yes, there is a point to all this. <laughs> but there was a set called uh, Mirrodin, was the name of the magic set, or the block of magic cards. And everything w- was like crystalline in appearance, and m- like me- metallic base. So it was kind of neat. Sounds but cool. But it got me thinking back to when I was in high school, 
we were writing sci-fi or fantasy stories for a creative writing course. And one of my friends said, everything on Earth is carbon-based. I'm like, yeah, this is true. You know, we know enough science to know this, this is true. He goes, what if there was a planet where everything was silicone-based? Oh. And it was crystalline. You had, like, crystal forests of, like, giant trees that were crystalline in shape. And they had crystal shards for leaves. I'm like, oh, that look kind of like snowflakes, but they're like glass, you know, and, and everything's silicone based as opposed to carbon based. I'm like, oh, and it really got me thinking along the lines of that would be make a really cool, like different plane in D&D where everything was like silicone based and, and the species and races and, and everything was just different silicone based, like crystalline type creatures and such. So... It's just a thought that I had as we were talking, and I'm like, oh, that would be Sounds really like you cool. need to incorporate that into your campaign. Uh, maybe. I might have to, you know. so Something high level. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. So, yeah, it was just, it's just a unique thought, I guess. That's, that just gives you an example of no limits, right? Like, you know, I mentioned earlier on the mushroom forest is like oh yeah but a crystalline forest would be cool too you know so it just gives you an example of you can go anywhere with this game and that's part of the the appeal i guess sure but specific areas and environments that we want to talk about in this episode i did put down on the outline forgotten realms because that's probably the most well-known and in the new D movie does take place in forgotten realms they mentioned yep. a few locations there that that we'll be mentioning here shortly. I had just discovered Forgotten Realms within the last year or two, mm-hmm. believe it or not. So I, I'd never, like, I saw the books when I was younger and such. And when, even when I played for 3.5 and 3, they were still there. But I was like, ah, that's a, that seems like an advanced thing. <laughs> you know, for, Forgotten Realms, yeah, I don't know. That's more books I'd have to buy and yada, yada, yada. So I never really looked at maps or did a whole lot of research until last few years and i gotta tell you as expansive as that is it's pretty amazing and the fact that it's a quote unquote official setting for D now i kind of like it yeah forgotten realms is nice ed greenwood is a really talented creator i don't remember the exact specifics but i've read and heard him talk about this uh, online before and he created forgotten realms for his own campaign and his own stories actually even before D and ultimately TSR purchased Forgotten Realms once Gary Gygax was ousted from the company. If you recall, Gygax, he had a campaign that they were publishing maps and other types of resources for called Greyhawk, and I have those, and I I really liked those as a kid, uh, as a young player. At the same time, they had a few Blackmore settings. That was Dave Arneson's campaign settings. Arneson had been gone from the company for a while as well and ultimately they needed something to replace Greyhawk so they went with Forgotten Realms and I didn't really jump into Forgotten Realms partially because it was seemed like it was part of erasing what Gygax had contributed regardless if that's true or not you know 15 16 17 year old me felt that way I was really into though Mistara and the reason I was into it is it was just so rich and there were so many supplements so uh, Mastara is basically the known world, and it, it came out of the basic and expert sets of D and D. If it didn't have its start in the Cook in or the Moldvay and the Cook sets, it was definitely out by the time Beckme was out. And it's just a rich, rich world with tons of supplements, which I I have all but one, 
I think it's, I'm, I'm going to guess here. I'd have to go home and count, but it's like 15 supplements. And every world, every culture is just so well spelled out. And even though it was for basic Dungeons and Dragons, and I played advanced Dungeons and Dragons by the time these supplements came out, I just converted it. I played AD&D over it. And I would suggest to anybody to check out Mystara. There's still a big following for it. Uh, I cannot remember the name of the group, but there's a group online that produces, uh, I don't know if it's monthly, bi-monthly, or quarterly PDF magazine with additional and new information for Mystara, done in a really mm. professional way. And Mystara is just great. Wow, you I've remember never heard of it prior. Sitting here, this is the first time I've heard of that setting. You've played in Mystara. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I stole Birdsong. It okay. was not called Birdsong. Okay. It was called something else, and I just didn't have the time to build a complete. This Birdsong was a city from our last campaign, and so I stole it from there. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, I, I needed a, I needed a city quickly, and, and it was great. Being in theater, I I may have mentioned it before that. I had a director once tell us, if you like it, steal it, tweak it, make it your own. Oh, yeah, for sure. So that's the way things work. So absolutely. So other cities, like with setting, within settings, you know, we they mentioned Waterdeep in the... Waterdeep's great. And yeah, in the movie. And yeah, Waterdeep. Oh, my goodness. You could spend a whole year-long campaign in Waterdeep alone. I, I would say multiple yeah, years. Yeah, m- multiple years. Because it's just... It's such a great setting, you know, as far as yes. cities go. 100% agreement. Um, there's other ones around Waterdeep, even. And there's smaller cities that I hadn't really heard of until I started researching Forgotten Realms. But um, there's one, the City of Brass, which, you know, that's mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. like a desert area. Yep. And that's so popular, it actually makes an appearance in Midgard as well. Oh, very um, cool. They have the City of Brass in Midgard, which I thought was kind of neat. Um, in the Southlands, I believe. But there's there's just so much there in Forgotten Realms. I mean, it's pretty expansive. I thought that looking at the map that I was like, wow, this is a pretty big map. You know, Forgotten Realms is pretty big. And then I looked at Midgard and the setting for Midgard. If you go online and look at the map for that, it is huge. Pretty massive. <laughs> it's huge. I haven't um, seen it for a while, but yeah, it's my memory. There's, there's a big city there and they just released a new book. Kobold Press just released a new book on Zobek, the Clockwork City. And... They had previous, like, Zobek Gazetteer and a couple other minor books based in the city of Zobek. Which, another spoiler alert, you may or may not visit Zobek in the next campaign. But it's that city is so unique. Like, a little clockwork steampunky stuff, some, like, a kobold district. You know, you have a merchant district, and you have all these different districts within the city itself. And it's just. They have a separate map just for the city, and it's pretty nice. Like, you know, it's big enough, we'll put it that way, that you it's like Waterdeep. You could spend a good year just in that, you know, doing adventures just in that city. But, mm-hmm. you know, that won't be the case <laughs> But uh, for, for the campaign I'm running. But I digress. It's just one of the cities out of hundreds in Midgard that are unique. One of the things that appealed to me for the Midgard setting, you talked about the expansive backgrounds and cultures and such um, for the other setting. And that's how Midgard is for me. Like, I'd never... When you think fantasy dwarf, there are some tropes that come to mind, thanks to Tolkien, because he was a father of fantasy. And some of them are like, oh, they work under the mountain, 
they you know mine they're very stoic and gruff you know people you know and and they're just they're dwarves everybody knows what dwarves are right well in midgard they have all that but they also do raids in normal villages and such and they're almost evil not really evil but they're almost ah, boy how do i describe it what they do is to get people they kidnap people in their young teens and do raids on nearby villages and such and cities to work in their minds for them. Hmm. And it's kind of a point of pride. And after seven years, your time is up. You're no longer a slave. You're released back to your family, whatever. And it's kind of a point of pride for many people. They're like, well, I spent seven years under the mountain. <gasps> you did, you know, like, and it's kind of a, Oh yeah, buddy. Well, I served in Nam type thing, you know, like, so it's, you know, and many survive. It's got like a 93% survival rate because they treat them pretty well, even though they're quote-unquote slaves. You know, they still treat them pretty well. And you kind of get used to it. And like a family will adopt you and, and such in the dwarven society. But it's it's kind of neat because I'd never heard of dwarves like that. Like usually they're lawful good and they won't, you know, do stuff. But they said once every like four or five years they go on these massive raiding parties. Wow. can have a bunch of people and take them back. And, that's all dwarves you know, in general in Midgard? Just, well, the one specifically around Zobek and, and that area. Are they the based on, like, Durgar? And Not too much. Hmm. It's just, it's unique. It's very unique. The other thing about Midgard that's setting uh, culturally, culturally that I thought was weird was kobolds. First time I played in third edition, kobolds were bad. You know, it was like, oh, everybody fights kobolds at level one. You know, it's the kobolds. And we fought them in your campaign you know i got a buckle, bucket of a uh, excrement <laughs> thrown at me by one you know <laughs> so they're not great people however in midgard kobolds are a normal playable species that you can play within the setting pathfinder as well so in pathfinder as well and they have their own society and such they're they're still not great but they're not the evil that we've, you know, that I've played them up in my mind. Yeah. Like, yep. You still got to watch your pockets when you're going through the kobold district in the cities, you know? But It's interesting um, as there's been this massive growth in tabletop role-playing games. Um, as a result, I won't go into all the details, but concurrently, there has been a different attitude towards species like kobolds and orcs and whatnot. And they are often no longer played like tropes. They're... They become playable characters. Perhaps they're, you know, they're, it isn't a dwarf who toils under the mine. This is a dwarf who became a sailor and mm. totally has nothing to do with mining. I mean, there's a lot of options if you really want to change up your play, your characters. And that was a tough thing for me to get my head around when I started our last campaign three years ago. I was really deep diving back into D&D in general. Uh, I didn't at first really warm up to it too much. But over time, I, I do like it. I like the options for characters and for players. So with our upcoming Pathfinder campaign, I plan to try to break some tropes. And uh, it, it is interesting that there are kobolds, and you can be a kobold. You can be a variety of different characters. And I think it's it's fun. It opens up the possibilities the, that you can do with your game, just like when you have a variety of environments in your world building. It just opens up more things. It's it's just really enjoyable and opens up a lot of creativity. Well, that being said, 
<clears throat> I'm glad you went there a little bit, because um, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my old grognard hat on a little bit. And, <laughs> Slip and it on, beardy get. <laughs> There's only one complaint I have with the amount of various heritages that you can be. Not in Pathfinder necessarily, but in D&D. &D. Yeah. And this is it. It has become to the point where creators, and yes, I'm going to not creators of the game that I love. They, It's like they flip through a children's animal book and yeah. go, hey, let's make a race on it. Yeah. And that's my biggest problem. It's like, okay, we have... I mean, just off the top of my head, we have Tabaxi, which are cat, cat rays, which is fine. They have those in Midgard as well. They have those in the Kobold setting. Yeah. Then they have the Akakroka, the bird race. And I'm just like, oh, okay. I can't stand that race because even at a low level, you can fly. Yeah. And it, it creates a yeah. difficulty for the DM. Yep. And I'll we'll be talking about that. And I think the next episode, we talk about flight in different ways. So oh, cool. Fly and D&D &D and stuff. But... So we'll definitely do a race focus on them. But there's also, I kid you not, there was an elephant race. Oh, yeah. There's, I think there's a dog race. Probably by now. Uh, by now, I think. I don't know who does it. It might be a third party. But there's so many different things. And, of course, Dragonborn we've mentioned before, which I don't mind Dragonborn so much. But Yeah, they've been around for a while. Yeah, they've been around for a while. But there's also, like, a baboon-type race I've seen. And just, I'm like... Okay, when's the animal type race is gonna stop? <laughs> I mean, is this D and D or is it a zoo? I know, right? You know, like, so and that's I feel cool the if same you want to play it. Yeah, it's cool if you want to play it and whatnot. I like the different options, but you know, let's not just look at animals and go, "Hey, let's make a new race on it." And like, let's not let's not do that. Okay, know? grognard time here. What was I thinking? I ain't old, huh? Don't worry, pops. We're almost across the street. Hey, get away from me. I don't need no snot-nosed little... Yeah, yeah. Um, we got the Grognard hats on, so, okay. you know, go for it. This is not a slam on the way anybody wants to play. I think I love players having options, and if a player comes to my game and they want to be a leshy or, you know, something that's very unique, awesome, go for it. However, I agree with Guy Gax, and he had written this in Dragon Magazine. One of the reasons he had limitations on which races could play which classes and limitations on races in terms of abilities. Some have flaws, some have uh, bonuses just by virtue of the race they are. There's level limitations for some races. He did that to promote players wanting to play humans. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, if we don't have these things, then no one will ever play a human and you're just going to have a game of superheroes. Oops. <laughs> you're going to have a game. Hit my mic stand, folks. Uh, you're going to have a game. Of... I wonder what that noise was. I was like, what was that? You're going to have a game of superheroes. Nobody's going to be playing humans. Everybody's going to have dark vision. You're going to eliminate a lot of the fun parts of the game. And he was particularly fond of having a fantasy world that was human-oriented, human-dominated, so that the other fantastic elements and, and species and or races, however you want to refer to them, were unique and fantastical. And I would say jump to where we are at these days. Do you notice no one plays humans in your games? <laughs> right. Everybody wants dark vision. Everybody wants those extra super bonus powers. And so I do like, the, like in Pathfinder, there's so many more species, they call them ancestries, to play. 
and and so many more classes. I do like that. I like the options for players. I want players to be happy, be creative, and enjoy what they're doing. But at the same time, it is definitely more of a mix of fantasy and a superhero game rather than something, say, like early D&D where you've got a party of five or six people and they're barely hanging on for dear life, going into horrible environments and really just not only surviving through combat but also surviving through strategy and resource management that doesn't exist as much in the new game and that's fine i still enjoy it love it as much as ever but the old grognard in me sometimes wishes uh there was it was a little bit more like that (laughs) in the old days i should say honestly the grognard in me thinks along similar lines however to fix humans i think like I don't want them suffering in D&D the way Space Marines suffer in Warhammer 40,000. Oh, I don't know what that is. So, Space Marines in Warhammer 40,000, that's one army pretty much everybody has because that's the brand recognition for Games Workshop, right? It's like, pretty much if somebody's, even if you know next to nothing about Warhammer 40,000, you see a picture of a Space Marine, you know. Yep. So, that's part of the reason they do that, but... Everybody has a Space Marine army, pretty much, of some sort. The problem is, Space Marines, as the... I mean, we're talking early as second edition to current. They're pretty much good at everything. They're very vanilla in some aspects, but... You know, like... And there's other armies that focus more on combat or more on shooting, and and they do it slightly better, but... Marines, if you build your list right, you can have a really shooty list. Anyway, I digress. I was thinking to fix humans, they should make them straight vanilla and make them good at everything. And that's not necessarily the case, but mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want to see him suffer from the space Marine syndrome is what I'd call it. You know, it's like, why yeah. would a human have dark vision? That doesn't make sense. But you know, I won't go into the details now, but hard. I think Pathfinder has a better approach to humans than D and D than five E does. And I also think they have a better approach to martial classes in particular, the fighter than five E does. So it'll be interesting to see how some of these things play out in the next campaign where you and I can kind of compare them and and, and see if that alleviates or answers some of these questions we're bringing up right now or concerns. Yeah. But yeah, I totally get it. <clears throat> and, you know, let's go off the rails just a little bit, speaking of Pathfinder. Okay. So, um, <laughs> and this will be the first time listeners probably hear this, although I will have announced it on the Facebook page since I did this morning, actually. We are wrapping up season one here, folks. Um, we only have three episodes left in season one. And season two will be on the way, and I have not even let Ron know, so this is a surprise to him as Ooh, well. I like this. Um, so one of the things that I want to focus on in season two a little bit more is Pathfinder, because we will have more experience with Pathfinder by that point. Yep, May 12th, so. we're starting our new Pathfinder yep. campaign. Yep, so... Pathfinder 2, I should point out. Which will be after this episode airs, maybe? <laughs> Perhaps. So so I'm trying to think how many... Yeah, yeah. Th- this episode will air a good ways after we we do it. So we're looking at the new season starting, like, end of summer, probably, midsummer, right around there. But by then, we'll have some experience yes. with Pathfinder. And we can talk about, you know, various differences and such. But, you know, we... And even the format of the podcast might change a little bit. So exciting stuff coming, folks. Stay tuned. Um, 
That is exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is exciting. So sorry to go off the rails like that a little bit. I'm just, I'm excited because hey, it's exciting. You're on the crazy train. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good song. <laughs> okay, we're off the rails. <laughs> do that um so yeah just the various cultures and and such there's again like environments it's pretty much open for the dm to decide different cultures and such but there's some pre-written ones that are really well done i thought i agree um now one of my favorite things just from the brief very very brief research that i did on the akakoroka or however you want to say i can't pronounce that i can't either bird people um the brief research i did on them the thing i did like about them they're very stoic they're like vulcans i guess Mm -hmm. Um, very stoic very logical very proper and i liked that about them i like that aspect of the race you know it's like oh and they're kind of haughty and and it's like i kind of dig that but i didn't like the fact that they were birds (laughs) you know it's like that's great but yeah i don't know how are they gonna hold a weapon (laughs) all right no, I know how they do. I'm just being yeah. silly. Yeah. But yeah, you know, turtles are another one I didn't even mention. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just thought of it. I'm like, oh, and I almost made a monk turtle class oh for your campaign and called him Leonardo or something or Donatello oh, or something. That would have been hilarious. It would have been funny, but we're not doing a funny campaign, so I decided not to. That is hilarious. Anyway, I'm sorry. Hey, you never know. One shot coming up, maybe. Hey, there we go. Um, you know, I mentioned my love of Mistara and uh. One of the things that's great about it is it's not just a list of cities and locations across the map, but it includes terrific, terrific information on various cultures and also includes NPCs in in all the resources. They're just chock full of that kind of thing. And I think that's really what made that world come to life for me is the fact that it wasn't just locations and a little blurb saying this is a city with uh, 85,000 people and it's located on a stream in this region. It went well beyond that. It talked about the politics, the uh, the economy, many other things culturally that are important when you're world building. And I just, I, I love that kind of stuff. Working on the world for our new campaign, I find that I'm really enjoying it. But at the same time, it's challenging because you want to have variety in the various cultures, so it doesn't go as fast as I would like it to. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Um, that's actually the term gazetteer comes to mind. Yeah, it's it, the gazetteers, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it goes more in depth with population and, mm. and districts and such like that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. We'll talk about those cities in just a moment. Okay, so the... Cities that we were talking about with the gazetteers and such. One of the things that, one of my favorite things, I should say, about the old Warhammer Fantasy setting. Um, it's called the Old World now. If listeners don't know, or if you don't know, there is a realm called the Empire. They were humans, but they inv- they had some black powder weaponry, and they were, you know, like you had Bretonia, which were humans as well, but they were mostly like. Um, round table knights, King Arthur, that sort of setting. Empire was more of a gunpowder type setting, like I would say Renaissance type setting. And they had different city states and different states and, and such and provinces. And 
politically speaking, it was really interesting. They had an, an emperor, but he was elected by the elector counts, which each elector count ran a province or city-state, depending on how big the city was. But one of the things they did is they had several gazetteers posted for each city. And it wasn't just population, like you said. It was, you know, it was politically different areas. Like, they just... And so within the empire and fantasy, in the Warhammer fantasy setting, there were so many different culturals, cultural differences within the empire, even. Even though they're all human. And that was one of my favorite things about that setting. It was so unique. And then you add on top of that, the elves, dwarves, um, under most populated cities, most bigger cities... They had what were called Skaven, which are ratmen. And they had different clans and such. I mean, it was just... And they were evil. But, you know, they it was just very unique. And then you had orcs and such like that. And lizardmen. And, you know, vampires. And it's just... That setting to me was so awesome that way. Now, the role-playing game for Warhammer, I've heard nothing but good things about. Um, all editions. But the playable races for that were only dwarves, humans, elves, and uh, halflings, I think. And that's about it. Hmm. That sounds great. So, and the other thing I had heard back in the day before um, Fantasy Flight took it, or, oh, there's another company that's doing their role-playing game for Warhammer now. I'm drawing a blank. But one of the things that back at the early edition... More advanced Warhammer roleplay game. It was if you started out like when you started out, you were like, "I'm gonna be a knight." No, you couldn't do that. If you're starting a character, you had to start at the ground level. Like, oh, you want to be a knight? Well, you're gonna have to work your way up to that. You're gonna start as a squire cleaning out the stables, <laughs> and you know, and you'd actually through your profession and such, you'd as you gain levels, you'd get closer to being a knight. So that you become a knight at your higher levels once you could afford armor and everything else. So that was a really unique approach, I thought as well, culturally speaking as well. You know, like in the role playing game aspect. Anyway, like that would force you to be, you know, like look at things through a different culture. You're not like a highborn knight right off the bat. You're, you know, you had to work your yeah. way up. Uh, AD and D had some things like that as well. You you didn't just start out as a bard. Uh, if I remember correctly, you started out as a fighter. Then you after you got to a certain level, you switched your class to thief, which mm -hmm. is now rogue. Right. And then you did some levels in that. And then I believe you became a bard if you once you met the prerequisites. And there was probably a couple of other classes like that too. Can't remember if paladin was like that. Maybe Cavalier. But anyway, at least the Bard was. And yeah, that's in interesting stuff. Which is an Easter egg, by the way. Spoiler alert, if you've not seen Honor Among Thieves yet uh, for D&D, the Dungeons and Dragons movie, it's a little bit of an Easter egg there. Because the Bard character in that, I kid you not, I sat there for the first 15 minutes of the movie or more going, wait, is he a rogue? Right. Or is he a Bard? Wait, he might be a thief. Wait, no. Did he, he cast any spells? Like, right, right. I was just, and he did, but you know, spoiler, mm -hmm. he did later on. But yeah, it was like that is not right there to that because you didn't know right off the bat. Like it wasn't probably until an hour into the movie that I was like, "Oh, he is a bard." <laughs> you know? Yep. So, so yeah, it's kind of neat. Yeah, it is. It was super cool. Yeah, I enjoyed that movie. Oh, it was a great, great movie, and it was lots of Easter eggs. But we're talking about 
you know, yeah, and that'll Gallagher's. be a different episode. How's that? Yeah, that'll be a different episode. You know, we'll we'll talk about the various D and D movies and how awful they were until this one, <laughs> and then this one was awesome. And we'll talk about how you can't get a popcorn bucket anymore and how disappointing no. that is. Now you gotta get some Arby's dice. Yes. Oh, Arby's is coming out with dice, folks. I mean, by the time this episode airs, you'll probably be able to have some. I might get or some. or they're sold out. Or they're sold out. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably try and get some. But anyway, so. I like it when companies put more thought and background into areas and cities and such. One of my favorite things, again, I'm going to gush about the Midgard setting like a fanboy. One of my favorite things about it is they give you like councils, like the city council for Zobek, for example. They give you each NPC for the council and who's in charge of what, what their income is, and like all this background information. Yeah, it's like not just their stats. And, like, how they think. And I'm like, oh, that makes playing an NPC so much better and easier. Yep. But it also allows for different interactions with your players. This this is true. I've seen that. So, I mean, I'm just going to say probably one thing that's not real popular if people are huge WotC fans. But it's been my experience so far. And I have a, a lot of resources that early D&D, particularly in the Gazetteers for Mastara that I was talking about, I think even up into third edition and Pathfinder, the Cobold Press stuff, a few other third-party companies, the Daring Team Press stuff with the Critical Role Taldori campaign. I just feel like they are more detailed and more thorough and they have more information than the current stuff that WotC is putting out. And so when you see that stuff, how can you not be a fanboy? Right. It's so well done. I think they're in, you know, these other companies that are smaller, they're not like Watsy who has the Dungeons and Dragons brand name. So when they're out there competing, they have to bring their A game every single time. And it's my understanding that with Hasbro having this five-year plan of wanting to, you know, double their, whatever, whatever the five-year plan is, but I know that Watsy's part of that plan and it had something to do with increasing their profit by like double or something well one of the things that's happening is is that they're producing books at a faster clip and the quality's gone down a little bit so when you do pull open a midgard book you know something from that setting and you look inside of it or you do pull up something something from Pathfinder, some of their newer something maybe that just comes out in adventure path or what have you and you see the detail and the precision and the ease that how easy they make it for one to run these games how can you not be a fanboy when you're comparing it to at least the current stuff that's coming out from WotC although I will say I did get the uh, Golden Vaults book I haven't read all the way through it I've read a couple of the scenarios I, I really liked it I thought it's pretty good so I may steal some stuff from that. There you go. That's. I just saw an ad uh, on Facebook the other day because you know how Facebook loves to target your ads, and I came across an ad and it really intrigued me, but I didn't click on it because I didn't want the algorithm or whatnot. But it was, I kid you not, Revolutionary War setting for your D and D five E campaigns. Oh come on now, American Revolutionary War. For, oh come on, I'm like, huh? That sounds fun. It sounds fun. And I know my buddy James is a huge Revolutionary War nerd, so to speak, and history geek. And and I am too a bit, but he knows stuff. I mean, he knows way more than I do about it. 
and he's an expert, I think. But he would like this. He'd probably like that setting. For me, I would just like to t- borrow stuff from it. <laughs> you know, so I'd like to play a one shot so, in it. Yeah, that would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Hey, you know, we're talking about different, and I, I won't digress here, but I thought it would be remiss of us not to mention this. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about various RPG systems, did you see yesterday that Critical Role announced their two new RPGs? I did not, although I did see the name for the Project Black Flag that Cabal did. Oh, what is it? Um, they released it earlier this week, and I can't tell you off the top of my That's head. That's a research team. But here, <laughs> I'll tell you about the Critical Role. Yeah. So yeah, they're, critical they're role. releasing two RPGs soon, and I think they will both be showcased at Gen Con in August. The first one is a D6 system, and it's for short campaigns or, or little short story arcs. It reminds me of some – it sounds like easy D6 from DM Scotty. But it's just a fun and it, a fun RPG, uh, simpler, that can be uh, applied to any setting. However, they have an epic fantasy long campaign RPG coming out called Daggerheart. Oh. And – the speculation is, is campaign four will switch to that uh, system rather than D and D. So it's interesting. Watsi's getting a lot of competition from a lot of different uh, areas right now, and that's good because it makes everybody better. Right, absolutely. And you know, Microsoft and Apple. Uh, Microsoft almost went out of business, and I may have mentioned this before, but they almost went out of business. And Steve Jobs knew that competition was good for the market he said well if microsoft's wiped out we're the only ones once everybody has apple products what then we'll have it goes we won't sell anymore right so he bailed microsoft out he gave them the money they needed to get back into the black wow well that's kind of i did not know that yeah so it was i mean we're talking late 80s i think when that happened but Hmm. anyway so, just interesting side note there. Yeah. So, Tales of the Valiant is the Project Black Flag official name. Of the new RPG. Of the new RPG. Tales of the Valiant. I like that. And it's basically a 5e clone, I think. Yeah, um, I think it is. So, just from what I've read so far. But there's some, some differences that I, I like so far. So, since we're talking about different environments and cultures and settings in D&D, um, let's wrap up the D&D segment by t- briefly, briefly. Boy, I... We can't talk all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly discussing how you handle travel in D&D. So, Ron, I, I've sat in some of your games. I know somewhat how you travel. You say, oh, we'll take. And sometimes you roll for encounters and such. Yeah, I always fake but, that. But I figured. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever there was a random encounter, I knew that encounter was coming. Okay, okay. <laughs> Don't tell the rest of the players. No, 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 no. Although they may be some of our listeners. <laughs> um, how I handle it personally is there's, like, in Midgard, for example, they do have a travel chart mm. that you can access and say, okay, if you're... And that's one of the best things about the online map. It has a charting tool or, a, like, a mapping tool. So if I click on Zobek, for example, and I say I want to go to um, the Iron Mountain... And it will draw a line and tell me how far in miles that is. And I can look at the chart and see, okay, if they're going a medium pace, slow pace, or fast pace, this is how long it will take to get there. Hmm, Nice. And then it will tell me, based on how long it takes to get there, how many encounters should be there. Like, how many random encounters. So, I'm like, oh, okay. That's cool. And it depends on how many you want to throw in there as a DM, of course. But 
that to me speaks loads. And that's kind of how I handle traveling is, yeah. okay, if it's going to take them five days to get there, technically speaking, there should be 15 encounters along the way, 15 random encounters. For expediency's sake yes. and for you know boredom's sake, my players might have three. <laughs> you know, so I struggle with that, and part of the reason is expediency. The other part is, as I've mentioned many times, I'm a narrative over numbers guy, mm-hmm. and so uh, unless the random encounter is going to be really cool, and if it doesn't serve a function for my overall story, I I tend not to not want to do it. So, for example, in our last campaign, the last random encounter we had were some direwolves. Oh yeah. yeah. I had a plan for that. I had a plan for it after they were either left behind, but then one of the players ended up killing the wolves. And so it really helped my plan. I was like, okay, this is going to work out so great. But then another player um, spared the dying or what have you mm-hmm. on the wolf. And so it totally threw that out. And it did look like, wow, just this random encounter where we, we had some wolves following us and we ended up getting into a, a fight with. That was weird. But I mention all that just to say that, no, I actually had a story idea for that. Oh, wow. I was going to tie into the story, but it kind of got thrown out <laughs> yeah. because of player choices, which is fine. I love right. that when that happens. But, right. um, yeah, so for me, I, I struggle with that. It's definitely one of the places I really, really struggle with, and I want to do better at that with this new campaign. So I'll probably be thinking of, I'll probably come up with my own random encounter tables and hopefully they'll have a narrative function to them. I will tell you, I'll give you a helping hand with that. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. Um, one of the apps that I have on my phone, I have a few and one's the DM toolkit, I think is what it is. I'll Mm. double check it. Okay. But it's 100 random things. Like here's the thing. I say things. There are several categories. So you could have one, 100 random encounters and they're random encounters. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can click a random one, or you can scroll through them and go one by one and go, oh, I like that one. But they're all numbered. But you could click on randomize, and it will give you a random one from that list. They're not all combat encounters. That's what yeah, I like about them. that's nice. There's some that were, you know, you see a broken down wagon on the side of the road, an old man who's, you know, stuck, and he's he hasn't had anything to eat for two days. What are you going to do? You know, like, I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's that's interesting, you know, so... And sometimes you can tie them into your big campaign, sometimes not. You know, so yeah. So it's for me, it's been pretty helpful for things um, along the categories of random things in that app. There's 100 ways to punish players who aren't paying attention. Oh, okay. Please send that my way. So I, yeah, it's it's such a great little app. It is free, but it's like ooh, or I like know, that ways to spice up your encounters that you have planned. You know, there's you know. 100 random NPCs and their motivations. It's just There's just so much cool stuff. Like That sounds great. That way, if your players do throw you for a loop, you can just click on it real quick and be like, yeah, you walk into the shop and you see Theodore Guzzle. He's a, you know, like, he's a halfling who owns a shop and you just go with it. So that way your improv skills get a little better. But I've had to... Like in my DM screen, just leave up a list of NPC names for when that came up. Because when it was first happening in this last campaign, I found myself often, uh, name, 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 trying to come up with a name. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like uh, the joke in movies or TVs where you, you look and, oh, like Jan Brady, George Glass, when she looks over and right. sees a glass. Right. That was kind of like me. 
right? There was an old movie, um, Hiding Out, with John Cryer. And he plays a cop who's going undercover as a high school student. And he's registering for classes for the school year. And they're like, what's your name? And he's like, and he looks over and sees the Maxwell House tin can for the coffee. And he goes, Max. And they're like, oh, Max, okay, what's your last name? And he goes, House. <laughs> and they're like oh and he goes yeah maxwell hauser <laughs> nice so i love that trope in tvs and movies because you don't see it too often anymore but you know <laughs> it totally works so traveling in D, i try to make it simple try to have a few random encounters but it doesn't always work that way i think i'm afraid of bogging down the session with travel Yes. That's and I think that's thing. every DM's nightmare, right? <clears throat> but you don't want to throw too many random encounters either because then it's just like, oh, here we go. We're going to travel. They would never want to travel, right? Here's like, my thing that traveling. I love. I love if players do it. So you go on this travel, and I want this. And, I'm, and I may even mention this before we start the Pathfinder campaign. But I love it when you have travel and you have two players on a watch. And let's say you need two or three watches per night. It puts these people, these players, into combinations where they can actually have a conversation while they're sitting and watch, and allows mm-hmm. for role play. And that type of role play allows for players getting to know each other and getting out expository information in a natural way. So I love it when players do that. Oh yeah, yeah. So, that's that's the best way to, I guess, uh, expand on ideas and character concepts and such. But mm-hmm. I think that pretty much wraps it up for our tabletop segment, except for. One little feature that we've not done too often, we're going to do 30-second tabletop. Um, Since we're talking about travel, I want to talk about Ticket to Ride. A lot of people know about this game. It's a fantastic game. So I'm going to start the timer here, and we're going to try and get this done in 30 seconds or less. Good luck. Oh, thanks. I'm going to need it. So Ticket to Ride is a cross-country train adventure in which players collect and play matching train cards to claim railroad routes connecting cities throughout North America. The longer the routes, the more points they earn. Additional points come to those who fulfill their destination tickets by connecting two distant cities. The player who builds the longest continuous railway will win the most points. So, or more points, I should say. So I've played it. Phenomenal game. Go out, check it out for yourselves. Ticket to Ride by Days of Wonder. Woohoo! 25 seconds, buddy. I did it. Success. So, yes, I've never. That was the first time I've successfully done a. I was going to say, I thought it was the first time. So, that it helps that I'm familiar with that game. Um, There is also an app available for listeners if you want to, where you play against a computer, even. And the app plays just like the board game. It's one Mm -hmm. of the few board games app out board game apps out there that do that that play just like the board game. Like, yes, this is awesome. So, that's very cool. Yeah, I like it a lot. So, ticket to ride. Check it out. So moving on to Comet Corner, um, we haven't done reading challenges in a long time. I, I, the funny thing is, as it's in the editing process for the episodes, I hear it again, and I totally forget to do the challenge. So we're just going to skip that. I don't know too much, uh, too many comic books that have to do with travel, so to speak. I don't know if there's anything that specifically, it's a like the travel is the main element, but right. I, I would say though. In so many fantasy settings, the travel is an, uh, an, an integral part of the storyline. Yeah. So yeah. let's say Star Wars. Well, there's a lot of travel in Star Wars mm-hmm. and in the Star Wars comic. Or perhaps it's a fantasy comic and you have a 
race of people fleeing where they were from and traveling into another setting. So there's a lot of stuff out there that does that, but we never, I just myself don't think of that as a key element and remember that, oh, this is such a big aspect to this story. So it's, it's hard for me to come up with some, I do see some that you have here on your list. Superman exile. Yes. Superman exile was the, probably the most famous one I can think of off the top of my head. You know, I only read the first couple of issues of that, but I have the whole storyline and I've really been thinking recently of reading it because I, I love Jerry Ordway art and I think he's the artist in that comic. Oh yeah. That storyline. Yeah. And well, in green lantern, green lantern core I have on the list as well. Yeah. And, they don't travel as much, but you do see a lot of different cultures and worlds within Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps. Usually. For sure. For sure you do. Um, which, like Gardens of the Galaxy type thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like it because of that, probably. Um, Spider-Man, I have on the list because back when I was collecting Spider-Man exclusively back in the early 2000s, he went to a lot of different areas, like within the Spider-Verse even. And, uh, you know, there, there's the new... The new movie coming out, the new animated movie. Across uh, the Spider-Verse? Spider-verse. Across the Spider-Verse, yeah. that's what it is. So, yeah, so it'll be... The greatest, the best, the yeah. greatest, the greatest and the best Spidey travel yes. comic. I can't remember which issue it is. It's it's probably in the 280s or the 290s, Amazing Spider-Man. And it's where Spidey ends up out in the suburbs. And he's got nothing to spin his web on. And ultimately, what happens is when he's done with the the story, he has to take the bus back to uh, Queens. <laughs> I remember that one. I actually I did that read that one. That was it's, awesome. It's great. Yeah. It is a good one. That is a good one. So so yeah, not a whole lot in the comic book. So we'll move right along to film and TV. I think. Sure. Um. So, video beat. There are so many travel movies. We're not gonna get into them all, but. By and far, one I've just watched recently, I say recently, within the last five years, anyway, is Murder on the Orient Express and uh, Death on the Nile, the Agatha Christie mysteries. Yes. Uh, my wife and I both watch them with um, Kenneth Branagh as Poirot. Yeah. Amazing movies. I haven't seen them yet, but I love him and I love his work. They are amazing. And I'll just be honest, like the scenes and everything, like even if it is CG, it looks amazing. It's mm-hmm. very well done. Um, this week, or just two weeks ago, actually, I watched Jungle Cruise on Disney+. Plus. I don't know if you've seen that with The Rock. I like it. I like it as well. My kids were like, why are you watching this? Like, they came in, and I'm like, you should watch it. It's really good. They're like, is it? I heard bad things. I'm like, no, it's really good. <laughs> like, it's fun. It reminds me a lot of the it's early great. Pirates movies that were fun. You know, it's great. Fun. Um, so, yeah, that one's a good one. Jungle Cruise is really well done, I thought. Um, sure, it's a little cheesy, a little goofy, tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, that's half the fun. It is, totally. Um, speaking of goofy and tongue-in-cheek, did you ever watch the Around the World in 80 Days with Jackie Chan? I did when it first came out, so I can't remember the details, but I, I remember enjoying it. It was also Owen Wilson, right? Yeah, I believe so. Or is that Shanghai Nights? Oh, wait, that might be Shanghai Nights, yeah. Yeah, but I do. I did see Around the World, and I, I did like it. Did you? Okay, I don't think I've ever seen it. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't stunned or blown away by okay. it, but I liked Good it. Good to know, I guess. I guess. But um, Of course, you have the road movies we've talked about before on the podcast. Bob Hope, Bing Crosby. Yeah. Terrific movies. Watch them any chance you can. Yeah, so that, those are good. Um, of course, our favorite right around the holidays is playing Strange and Automobiles. Talk about travel movie. That is a travel movie, and you can't go wrong. I mean, is it is it John Hughes, I believe, right? It is. So there you go. And Kevin Bacon's in it. 
So, you know, you can connect a lot of people. You can. Through he steals that cab from Steve Martin in yeah. the beginning of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, planes, trains, and automobiles, amazing. You know, we've... And it's funny because Steve Martin only took the part. He wasn't not going to be in it until he got to the part at the rental car <laughs> place where he gets to drop like 15 F-bombs in, what, 30 seconds or so. Yeah, it's and, actually more than 15. Yeah, it's more than 15. And he's just like, okay, I'm doing it. And that was what convinced him to do it. Yeah, that was amazing. So, yeah, it is pretty funny. Um, have you ever seen it? It's a mad, mad, mad world. Love it. Really? You see, I've not seen it. Mm-hmm. That's another one that I've not seen. I love it. Uh, you know, I'm going to put some bad movies in here that I love, too. Okay. Yeah, that made, Mad, means. Mad made me think of them. Uh, Cannonball Run and 2. Oh, yeah. yeah Terrible movies. Yeah. Absolutely love them. Yeah. Also, Rat Race. Rat Race. I've never seen that one. I I've love it. it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out. Rat Race. Just uh, terrible, but fun. Yeah. And, the, you know, that's it's funny because I love the terrible old movies. Um, yeah. I watched Bloodsport last night. Oh, yeah. And that one's so... Like, looking at it now, back when I was in junior high, that was amazing. That was the yeah. best movie ever. Now I watch it, I'm like, <laughs> this is this is fun. I saw that twice at the movies when I was in high school and actually took a, a date there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because she but, had to see the movie I wanted to see. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and let's let's be honest, you know, you had a, a young Jean-Claude Van Damme. It was his first role. And, yeah. And, you know, his abs probably didn't yeah, hurt, yeah. you know. Yeah, <laughs> probably, probably didn't hurt. probably helped your cause she, a little. She was probably like, <laughs> okay, let's go. Yeah, right? <laughs> Um, so the one another travel movie that most people don't even consider travel movies, Lord of the Rings. Absolutely, it was a three year journey, folks. Let's not forget that. Yes. So that movie is a, I, I I would say that trilogy is the ultimate travel movie, and I love them. Oh yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. And it cracks me up when people say, "Well, why couldn't they just fly the rings to Mordor using the eagles?" And the best response I've seen to that is. Let's not forget what the ring does to people. The yep. Eagles totally would have wanted to take the ring for themselves. And not only that, there's there's other reasons too. I won't go into yeah. it now, but yeah. just go on YouTube and find interviews with Tolkien himself. Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's lots of reasons, but that's that's one yeah. of my favorites. You know, like oh yeah, for know, sure. The ring is evil. It's gonna you know it's gonna corrupt the Eagles. Absolutely. Sure. And you're assuming the Eagles could have gotten there without any problem too. Right, right. Especially since Sam carried Frodo because he was corrupted by the ring at the end there, yeah. and Sam's carrying Frodo. It was like, and it didn't corrupt Sam. And I'm like, well, the Eagles wouldn't have gotten corrupted that quick then, you know. So it's yeah, yeah. it's like yeah. They Sam, Sam is definitely, in my opinion, the hero of the film. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So and I, just the way Jackson directed those was pretty darn amazing. I absolutely think. wonderful. But, Love them. Yeah, wouldn't you know it, just like Steve Martin trying to catch a cab, we are out of time. I'm Mark Allen. Be sure to head over to our Patreon for even more geeky-themed goods and exclusive content. Take us home, Ron. Well, I'm Ron Rader. Until next time, remember to play on, nerds.